0: Welcome to this episode of Living Legends. I'm your host, John Reitman, and we are at Medina Country Club in Medina, Illinois, visiting with Steve Cook. Uh, A lot of you might remember Steve from his days at Oakland Hills in Michigan. We're going to talk about the 2004 Ryder Cup, his experiences mountain climbing, his philosophy on personnel management and tournament preparation and most importantly striking a balance between work and home life. Obviously you have something big coming up here, a lot of infrastructure built yes. up around the property, BMW coming up about the middle of next month. Yeah, so, so 35 days
1: is our kind of countdown and uh, so we're just kinda trying to button up a few loose ends and as, and as you know with most tournaments it's like to four or five or six years prior that matter by now. Not much we're gonna do 35 days out to change too much. We're just trying to avoid mistakes, avoid the human error issues, make sure things are tidied up, make sure guys are trained. Uh, We've done two trial runs so far, and then we'll do uh, another one a week from today is our third one, and then we'll do a fourth one, probably the Monday prior to the event, and then that'll be it, then we should be, you know, Relatively good to go. When you say
0: a trial run, what does that mean
1: exactly? Uh, We prep the golf course. We have the whole crew come in early as if we run the day like we're running the BMW the morning. So we have everybody come in early, just the same hours we would for the BMW. Everybody's on their route. We'll stage it the day before, the Sunday before, and bring guys in to do that so they understand that and just kind of go through all the detail work, right? What it might look like. It's always going to change because of weather or something, you know, something's going to happen. It won't be exactly the same. But then we can look at mowing routes and time all the mowing routes. And the mowing routes we have planned work. Can we get back to our collection point in the time we think we can? And how does that compare with the tea time? And it gets guys engaged and their blood flowing a little bit. And everybody pays a little bit more attention. And it allows us an opportunity to do some training and see where the mistakes are. Who's nervous? Who's not nervous? Right? who can, who's, we kind of already know who the Greens mowers are going to be and who the T mowers are going to be, but do the routes we have them going in from point A to point B, does that work? Is the staging in the parking lot, does that flow work? Does everything we have in the carts work? Do all the lights work? So it's light here pretty early. It's light here at 5.15. So we start at 5. So by the time everybody goes out, you really don't need lights in the middle of summer. But on August 12th, you know, from June 22nd to August 12th, six weeks, you we probably lost no, 10 or 15 minutes of daylight in the morning, so it'll be dark when they start. So that's why we came in early to get them used to driving around in the dark. And, and, you know, you just find an enormous amount of issues. And then it gets the staff involved, so then we have a crew meeting afterwards, and everybody has their input, you know, and you learn all these little bitty things that can save you... 30 seconds or a minute or two minutes or five minutes. So hopefully by the time the event comes, you know, we're at least the big issues we've got out of the way. The little issues that are going to occur because it rains or it's, you know, a dry spot over here, whatever it might be, those are easier to handle. And it worked out great the last one because we had a, a major windstorm the night prior, and we had six trees on the ground, debris everywhere so we couldn't mow fairways out of the gate and we had to scramble right it couldn't just couldn't have possibly been any better debris all over the green so we had to get the greens cleaned up so it was just that storm not only did it take out six trees <laughs> which was a good thing but it allowed us to have to come in and like change everything last minute and that was just couldn't have been a better scenario so that's why you do a trial run is that a common thing? Uh, I don't know. I've been doing it for most of my career. I, I try to, you know, I don't like things last minute. I don't want to go into an event the day of and try to figure something out, right? <laughs> Those mowing routes are different for an event than they would be for normal ply. So you got to look at that, at least look at it and see it and say, okay, that works, that doesn't work. And haven't done this a few times now. Uh, I wouldn't do an event without a, I mean, at least one trial run, if not. I mean, we'll end up doing about four.
0: Where did you learn that that, that was an important thing to do prior um, to an event? I, you know, John, I don't know.
1: I, I know when I, the first really big event I went to um, to observe was the Ryder Cup at Brookline in '99. And they had. I was a bit overwhelmed when I went there because we were having it in well at that time it was pre 9/11, so we were scheduled for 2003. And I thought, boy, we've got we've got a ways to go because you know Bill had it pretty dialed in there. So it took us four years to get to that point. So I I, I just wanted to. We got to run through this so I could see. Do we have the right staff? Do we have the right mowers? Do we have the right buckets? you know, whatever it might be. So that's probably... I remember going to that event and taking, you know, a booklet full of notes, like, wow, that ways to go. Right. And we were, we were a pretty good operation, but we, we had a ways to go to be
0: able to handle an
1: event the right way.
0: You mentioned pre-911. How did that affect the Ryder Cup? Obviously, I don't think it was at Oakland Hills till 2004.
1: Right, so it was it was scheduled for three in odd years. Right, it used to be in odd years. Right, uh, didn't impact us too much except that we had a lot of the, a lot of the material was printed. A lot of the shirts were some were printed, and I still have some of the materials that were printed with the 2003 date on it. I kept some of that stuff. So that had already was already in the works, but what was what, what, what didn't impact us as much as the Belfry. I mean, the Belfry was what ten, 10 days or fourteen days away. You, all the compounds were built, the roadways were built, everything was completely built, ready for people to arrive, and they're without an event. <laughs> I mean, that really, I don't know. I you know, I don't I never talked to that guy on how it impacted them, but for us, it was more like you know printing materials and shirts and merchandise and all the stuff that had dates on it. Everything else was... It wasn't a huge impact.
0: You could probably get a lot of money for some of that stuff on eBay now.
1: Yeah. I framed some of it. I just kind of... Not everybody knows it. I always have to point it out. Like, the badge said... That badge said 2003. Wasn't there Ryder cup in four? Yeah. So I don't know where I picked it up. I just... I'd like... I like things to be organized. If I don't s-
0: see it firsthand, I don't. I get nervous. You've always been this guy with always something big on the horizon with you. And I mean, at Oakland Hills, obviously, there's always just like Medina. There's always something big on the horizon anyway. But you had the Ryder Cup and, and all the preparation that comes with that, and then just all the normal tournaments that you have at a club of that level. Some of our our listeners might not be aware of your whole climbing background and some of the things you've done and some of the the places you've scaled around the country, but then you went and scaled Amadablam, and I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. That's good. I think that was, what, 2015 or so, in the Himalayas. Maybe give some of our listeners a little bit of background on what the preparation was like for that. and. You're not like a twenty-something-year-old guy going and, and preparing for a twenty-thousand-plus-foot mountain. There's yeah. a lot of work and a lot of risk involved with something like that. How did you get involved in that, and why, at this age, was that something that you wanted to tackle?
1: Well, I've always liked, you know, I've always liked the mountains. The mountains are like a special place for me. So, I'm um, well, backpacking, hiking. You know, if, you know, if you're a backpacker and you want to go higher. You're gonna have, you know, this is the only one way to do that. or not a climb if you want to go higher. So, I, I kind of just, I think it was for my 50th birthday, and I went to Mount Rainier and climbed Mount Rainier because I wanted to climb a mountain. Well, I was in no way prepared for that, and it was a great experience. And but that kind of. I realized how unskilled I was for that climb. I basically got drug up that mountain by the guides, right? you get hooked up onto a rope, and they tie all the knots for you, and they tell you how to walk, and it was kind of a little unfulfilling. So I wanted to learn, like, the technical part of doing that so I didn't have to be, you know, taking a taxi ride up a mountain. I wanted to get self-sufficient and be able to say that I climbed something on my own. And that led me to rock climbing a little bit and hiring a guide learn how to ice climb and mountain climb and... And then I just, that mountain got on my radar somehow, probably by talking with the guide that I had used in Colorado. And um, it was in the price range I could afford. It was at the time of year I could go do it, which was November. It was uh, not very high by Himalayan standards. I mean 22,000 feet is high, but by those mountain ranges it's not. Um, and because
0: it, Everest is what, 29?
1: 29. I mean, yeah. it's it's a full mile and a half higher. <laughs> so, so But it was a very technical mountain that you needed technical skills to do it. It wasn't physically as hard. So at my age, at that time I was 55 or something, whatever, that 56. Um, you know, I knew I could learn the technical skills and I could train enough to do the physical part of it. So that's well, how that mountain got on my radar and I always wanted to go to the Himalayas and the whole Buddhist-Hindu thing was interesting to me, you know. So yeah, that's and, and then the fundraising actually was the fundraising for Make-A-Wish Foundation was actually secondary to that. It wasn't my original purpose. I just, after I decided to go, I just I thought, well, I'll, I'll raise some money for a charity. And then that kind of blew up into the biggest part of that whole, whole experience was the fundraising became like the primary focus for me because that kind of just got, and there are so many life lessons in that, right? Is, you, you'd be amazed when you take a risk and do something, what other ancillary benefits can come out of that, right? And it doesn't have to be gold climbing a mountain, it could be, I don't know, it could be a lot of things where you're taking a risk and all of a sudden some other secondary thing comes and, and, and become, becomes a much bigger part of it. And that's how, that's that's, that was the reward that experience was the fundraising for Make-A-Wish.
0: So does that become sort of like just soliciting pledges like a walkathon thon kind yeah. of thing?
1: Or right. I mean, it was all social media for me. I mean, once the word got out, um, it really kind of exploded into something much bigger than I... Uh, I just kind of, like, did a little internet newsletter to a few people, and then the members at Oakland Hills found out, and then you know did a radio a couple of radio interviews and then you guys got involved you know Kevin Ross and did some and then all you know I mean, they just kept like growing and growing and growing and um, I remember when I met with Make-A-Wish the first time I thought well it's 22,000 feet was the summit so I'll raise $2,200 right a dime a foot or whatever, whatever it was and when I met with them they said well just so you know raising two thousand dollars for an individual fundraiser is a big number for a single person that's a big number you're going to, have to do xxx X, X, next and, and when i left that meeting i thought well you know if two thousand dollars is going to be really difficult how much harder could it be to raise twenty two thousand? so I, I set the number at twenty-two thousand, and we raised 36 <laughs> right so it's another life lesson of don't set the bar too low you know, never set the bar too low because you just never know what can happen if you set a high bar, and the donations just started, I mean, uh, flooding in really from all over the country, and little bitty ones. I forget what the average donation was. It was pretty low, like fifty dollars or something. And I had members giving, you know, fairly big sums. So to have a fifty-dollar average, I thought was pretty good. So, yeah.
0: Equate some of the lessons that an experience like that lends and how do you translate some of those? How do they apply in real life?
1: Well, okay, so for me, um, like just climbing in general, there's a couple really big life lessons I think for me. It's, so when you're climbing like that, there's, there's no... it's really hard to turn around. <laughs> You know, I remember when we were climbing the Grand Teton with this guide. And it's called the Black Face. It's a fairly vertical section. And he's up ahead of me, you know, at the belay station, kind of hauling me up. I'm, I'm climbing, but he's hauling me up. You don't just get to say, you I know, I don't feel too good. I'll meet you back at the hotel, <laughs> right? Like, you can get turned around, and they can haul you down the mountain, but it's really problematic, and they don't like it. So the life lesson is... it it, it teaches you to overcome hurdles. You know, when there's a pothole in the road, you just can't stop and turn around and go back to where you're going. You need to move around it. You need to figure out a way to move around it. So for me, it it was like, you you gotta keep going forward. There's only one choice. You gotta keep climbing, you gotta keep moving forward, no matter if you're tired, you're sore, whatever. And I think that that for me is a huge one. And then for me, I just think the mountains are like so um, soul-fulfilling. You know, for me, when I get in the mountains, I'm just convinced that we're not here by accident, that I didn't just, I'm not some amoeba that grew out of the water and and became a tadpole. Um, So for me, it's like, and I think it's really important. I I feel, um, when I'm in the mountains, I feel, uh, and I think other people do too, I feel less significant. Not insignificant, because there's a difference, but less significant, like just a little less important. And I think it's important for people to go places where they feel small, that make us feel small. And for some people, that could be, you know, in the hospital room at the birth of their kid, right? You probably feel a little less significant during that event. And for other people, it might be, I don't know, a fishing trip, or canoe trip, or, you know, I I, I don't know what it could be. I just think for me, it's when I go in the mountains, I, I just, all right, my ego. I'm not so, like, important as I might think I am at work every day, right? I just kind of feel a little... It puts your ego in check. It makes me feel small. And I think that's healthy.
0: Does any of that equate to what you do on the oh, golf course?
1: For sure. I mean, you know, I, I do think that physical accomplishments, whether you're a biker, a hiker, a runner, wh- whatever thing it is that you do, I, I, think it, I think it makes you stronger at work. And so for me, facing problems, you know, when you're dangling on, on the end of a rope, but there's some risk involved, it makes other problems feel a little less significant, All right? It's like you run into a problem, whether it be at work or at home, and you're like, okay, I think I, can, I think I can handle that because I've handled other stuff that's difficult. So uh, it absolutely helps me at work because it keeps me motivated, and it keeps me grounded. It keeps me, uh, you know, my priorities, like, in my head. You know, it's like it's just grass, this is not, not life or death. It's just grass. It's probably gonna grow back. You know, I I think part of the problem with superintendents, we all suffer from the same affliction. It's perfectionism. We see a blade of grass out of place and all of a sudden we either start smoking or we start drinking or we start working fourteen hours a day. And I I just think it's really important not to do that. Not to allow that to happen.
0: Was that it were you ever that guy?
1: Oh, and I—I I still think I am in some—in some.
0: So you've learned nothing.
1: Well, <laughs> right, but right. no life lessons at all. I think I still am at some point, but I think it's important to recognize it when it's occurring, right? We're all what works for us works for us until it doesn't work for us, right? So when the grass dies or doesn't look the way you want it to look, I think you have to compartmentalize that. Yeah, I want it better, but I also know that. I want to ride my bike this afternoon. Like, i got to balance the two of those things, right? The BMW is coming, but I'm not giving up, you know, the Seinfeld episode at 7 p.m. that comes on every night or whatever it is, right? Or my bike ride on Saturday afternoon. I'm doing that. I'm, I'm doing that for sure. I'm going to see my buddy on the weekend. I'm doing that for sure. Two weekends from now, I'm going to go for a bike ride in Iowa with two buddies. I'm doing that. There's nothing that's getting the way of that. Nothing. Knowing that, I think in the next two weeks I'll be set up pretty well and make sure I can take time off, right? But I know that I think that causes me to be a little bit more organized too, is like uh, that I'm just not that's the number one priority for me. And for superintendents who have kids and I know a lot of them, that's their priority. And they're the same way. I'm not giving up my kid's birthday. I'm not that means I have to change professions at some point, I might want to do that, but I'm not giving that up. At least the healthiest superintendents I know.
0: And I know. it wasn't always that way? Well
1: I don't think it was always that way for our industry and for me it was all, you know, I was, I, there was a period of time when I was younger um, when I would, I would, you know, I would work till dark and then I remember a trip I took uh, when I was working in France, I took a trip to St. Andrews. And it was kind of one of those aha moments, it was like an epiphany. I went to St Andrews it was like early afternoon and for some reason it had it dawned on me that this golf course had been there for 500 years it was going to be there 500 years from now i had no idea how many hours the guy had worked 200 years ago when he was taking care of it i had no idea how many hours the guy that was currently there was working on it it didn't really matter it was still going to be there and i'll never forget walking on the 18th green there and thinking that it's like That really put it in perspective for me and that was when I was probably, what, mid to late 30s at that time and that's when I realized, all right, there's other things maybe more important than, and in France, you can work till dark because it's not dark till 10 o'clock in the middle of summer because we're so far north. So I came back from that and I kind of dialed it back quite a bit. Then as I got older, I think you just get older and you get more mature and you have a better perspective in life. I'm one of those people who I love getting older. I don't really necessarily like what it's doing to my body, but, but I love getting older. I, I, I love everything about it. I really love the perspective it brings as you get older. You're able to recognize what's important, right? Because for most of us, we've probably passed up some things that were important that we shouldn't have at some point. So, I think as you get more mature, you're able to look at that and say, okay, I don't want to do that again. I don't want to do that again. You're a little more free with what you say, right? No question. <laughs> so, I, I, like, have really enjoyed that, being more of myself and not somebody different.
0: Throughout your, your life, you've, obviously, you've had a lot going on that, creates a lot of physical demand and there's a lot of preparation that comes with that. What has been and what is now your daily routine from a fitness perspective? Mm. You talked a lot about bike riding too and hiking and things.
1: Well, there's a big difference between working out and training. So I don't train anymore. But I I do try to, I, I make every effort, I probably like three to five days a week Doing something, and some of those days that might just be walking one of the golf courses. And if you walk course three, that's almost six miles. So I feel like at least I can, if I can't get out of here because of the tournament, then at least I could get a six mile walk in from 5 a.m. to 7 a.m. in a couple hours. And I try to go to the gym twice a week, and I try to ride my bike once a week. And but that's like it's hard. New job, right. You won't want out, you know, I was lucky at Oakland Hills. They, they, they were very patient with me, including the staff. Um, when I took that on, you know, I would leave work at 2 or 3 o'clock. Well, everybody else was still there and watering. Go home, get ready, do something for a couple hours, come back home, clean up, put everything away, journal everything out, fix my meal, plan the next day's meal. I mean, you're talking like the time I, from the time I left work to the time I went to bed it was like 5 or 5 hours a day committed to that. And it wasn't always training, you know, there's only maybe a 2 or 3 hour window where i was actually training. But that's a big time commitment. <laughs> so now I now I want now I'm working out for the purpose of I want to ride my bike when I'm 80. That's my goal. I want to be able to go for a hike or a walk or a bike ride one, you know, twenty years from now. And that's what I'm trying that's what I'm working out for now, is just to try to stay, you know, keep my head above water, so to speak, a little bit. And it's been challenging.
0: Are you done for sure with the climbing?
1: I wouldn't say I'm done for sure, but you know, I mean tick tock tick tock. Mm-hmm. Right? I'm not like thirty five anymore. So I know what it took at the age of fifty five to do that climb. And yeah, age is a number, I get all that, that's all true, but... Um,
0: what are you now, 58, 59? I just turned 60. 60.
1: So, you know, I, I can't run anymore. Um, I, I, I can't stand on the Stairmaster for two hours anymore because my knee starts to creak and hurt and then I'm on ice for a couple of days, so it's... Yeah, age is just a number, but it's also reality. There's not as much cartilage left. Right and your knees, and I don't care who you are. There just isn't. So, for the moment, I'm done because I have not shown the willingness to put in the commitment to train. And if you don't, you, it's not just something you go, you pick up and go do because you're not just risking yourself. You're you get other people that are there too. And if you're not ready, you're putting their safety at risk, as well as your own. So you need to like take it seriously. And I haven't, I haven't shown the desire to take it seriously, to train for it. It, it, it just seems like right now, having moved back here so, so close to family and friends, I mean, my life outside of work is just a, you know, it's 9.9 out of 10. You know, I'm seeing old college buddies. I'm seeing friends. I'm going to dinner next week with some former assistants and superintendents that are over here in the Chicago area. I'm doing that. And in the past, I would have said, I can't meet you tonight because i you know, I want to go train. You know, I don't want to drink. I, didn't, well, I wasn't drinking during that time period at all. Now when a guy calls me for a beer, if I have a gym schedule and somebody wants to go for a beer, I'm like, I'm going to go meet this guy for a beer. So I haven't shown the willingness to commit to training. So unless I somehow that drops out of the sky and hits me on the head, I'm probably not going to do it. I mean, I might go rock climbing or someplace, John. Like, it. Go, going to climbing the Grand Teton wouldn't be, like, that hard for me to get ready to do that. That's probably in my future. But some kind of major expedition? Mm, I don't know.
0: It's one of those things, that if you haven't done it or haven't done anything like it, it's hard to imagine what it must really be like. Put us on that 22,000-foot mountain with you. What is it like to get... At least toward the top of that and day to day, where do you sleep? Where do you, uncomfortable to talk about, but you do it when you're up there? Where do you go to the bathroom? How do you do those <laughs> yes. are the things that people don't think about that you just take for granted? It's funny, you that's you don't a... take for granted up there, I'm sure.
1: No, and that's that's like the, the main question everybody wants to know like, how does the bathroom situation kind of work out? Well, you carry a bag with you. I mean, it's just that's just the way it works. You know, and you got to be comfortable with that. And you know, there's other people around. And uh, you know, in a tent, you're you're using a bottle at night if you need. You're not getting out of that tent at night, so you're using a bottle.
0: Not getting out why?
1: Well, cold or dark, and some of those. In some of the campsites, it's you know, at least on that mountain, you're perched on a very precarious position. So you get out of the tent, you're not hooked into a safety line, and you slip and fall, which has happened. You're going, you're going to be falling thousand or two thousand feet. And then, you know, just getting out of the bag at that elevation and getting your gear on to go outside is, it's uh, worth it. So you carry a pee bottle in your sleeping bag and you figure out how the mechanics of that worked out. <laughs> you trained for that, too, or I did. Um, but, you know, for, for me, I wanted to know what expedition climbing was all about. I mean, one of the my, probably my favorite book of all time was Into Thin Air. So that was kind of infatuated with that story, and I wanted to experience that. I wanted to experience... Tibetan life, and Buddhism, and Hinduism, and I wanted to see Kathmandu, so all all those all that stuff combined made me want to do it. Um, but it's uncomfortable. It's like really, really uncomfortable. And it's about how much, how uncomfortable can you be for, how, how long can you be uncomfortable? You, you know, it's really uncomfortable. You can't breathe, you can't think right, you, you know, you can't eat right, you can't go to the bathroom right. It's like, you know, in hum- humans, all of us search for homeostasis, right? We all want 68 degrees in a leather couch. That's really comfortable. <laughs> Sleeping on rocks when you're cold next to a guy who you don't know and probably don't like because you've never met him before. You can't breathe. You can't eat. And you're tired. And your and blood sugar's low. And, you know, we checked our oxygen levels at, I don't know, nineteen or 20,000 feet, and your your blood oxygen level is, like, in the low 70s you know Everest it's even lower so you and I right now are probably at 98 or 97% oxygen saturation if you drop below 90 they're probably telling you to go to see the doctor you drop below 80 they're putting you in the ER and you're trying to operate and climb and do something physical when you when your O2 levels at 73% 72% 74% and it's hard <laughs> but You know, the higher the mountain, the harder the climb, the better the view, right? Nothing, nothing really rewarding in life is easy. It's all the hard stuff that's really rewarding and really memorable. Raising six kids is probably really hard. But when it's done, if it's ever ever done, Mm -hmm. it's probably pretty cool. Or whatever your thing is. You know, taking three years to rebuild your Ford Mustang from 1970 that you really, you tinker with for an hour a night. I'm guessing when it's done, if it's ever done, it's probably a pretty good feeling. Or building your house, or whatever thing you're into. So for me, it's about the, the more difficult it is, the, the better the reward. The easy stuff isn't. You don't remember easy stuff. Even though as humans we search, we we search for that naturally, genetically we want the path of least resistance. That's why cavemen wanted to find fire, right? Fire is more fun than no fire. <laughs> so you gotta you, gotta you kinda gotta get through the suffering part of it, I think.
0: You have a goal like that that you've reached for and you've worked to attain for so long and you go out and you do it. And then it's over. And like you said, you know, there's there's things your body just doesn't let you do anymore. The older you get and the training part of it, you know, your mind's not letting you do it. Take us through what it's like when that's over.
1: Well, when we it's fine. When we came back down to base camp, um, you know, the guide essentially turned us around at twenty thousand feet, so we were two thousand feet short. And uh, at the time, I couldn't wait to get down. I was kind of like relieved, like, oh, all right, let's let's like let's get, let's get this over with. And on the way down, the guide um, Brian said to me, he's like, you're going to have to figure out a way to let this uh, settle in. I'm like, what are you talking about? He said, well, not so many. And I go, no, I'm good to go. My cup was runneth over, you know. I've raised the money. I, I, I experienced everything I wanted to experience. I said, the summit wasn't secondary. And that's all he said. And he was right. <laughs> that last 2,000 feet, I think about, I don't wanna say every day, but I, I mean, I think about it a lot. These are that close. So when we got turned around, I would say, you know, I was bitterly disappointed, but not unfulfilled. There's a big difference between disappointment and lack of fulfillment. And I didn't feel unfulfilled. Um, But, you know, it's an unachieved goal, right? It's an unachieved goal. Uh, So what's next for me? You know, this. I mean, this challenge has, like, fulfilled that void for me temporarily coming here bigger challenge the tournament new new everything new staff new living arrangement i mean everything's new so that kind of has been um a big challenge for me
0: and you've been here what about two years uh
1: this is my second summer so it'll be like not quite 18 months i got here in april last year so 15 months or something um so i'm you know i'm completely devoted to this challenge right now but i don't i don't know I, i don't feel the need to like run a marathon or, you know, scuba dive to 200 feet or (laughs) set some world record scuba diving or something. But what I'm focused on now is reestablishing relationships that I let kind of not slide, but I didn't place the importance on them that I should have. Friends, family, whatever that is, I've, I've been working a lot on that, and that's been, like, really rewarding. Reconnecting with college buddies who I went to school with that I hadn't seen in 30 years. High school buddies that I only saw once a year, if that. Now that I'm so close to where I grew up, I could know, drive over and see him on the weekend or something. So that's the next big challenge for me, is get through the BMW and make a difference here and, you know, leave this place better than I found it.
0: We will be right back after a brief message from our sponsors. Pinpoint fungicide from New Farm Americas contains a new active ingredient to deliver outstanding early and late season control of Dollar Spot. Pinpoint provides superintendents and turf management professionals with an excellent fungicide rotation partner to optimize disease management stewardship. Pinpoint's unique and targeted active ingredient has been proven in university performance trials and delivers outstanding control of dollar spot, take all patch, fairy ring, and brown patch to ensure a clean field of play. For more information, visit newfarm.com. We're back at Madonna Country Club where we are visiting with Steve Cook. When you're thinking of going up in one of the mountains in the Himalayas, and we've all seen pictures of some of the, you know, the pictures from uh, excursions up Everest, and some of it looks like the Bataan Death March where you see corpses that are, you know, they're just frozen in the tundra, basically, some of them for decades. And you know, that stuff's real. And did, 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 did you concern yourself with that too much, or did, did any of that creep into your head as you're training to go up this mountain, that, you know, people do die on these excursions.
1: It, I probably over on that. Um, w- one of the things with getting older is uh, you have too much knowledge, right? You have too many experiences. So you start, you read more, you see more, you hear more, you've experienced more, and all of a sudden you get a little more afraid as you get older. So I think you're constantly, as we get older, fighting fear and or, or the, the unwillingness to take risk. And when I went over there, I was unwilling to take any risk. Like that, I, that was my number one thing. I'm not going to get hurt. I don't care. I'm going to do exactly what the guides tell me to do, and I am not going to get hurt. And the summit was totally secondary. So when we got turned around, I was the first one to say, uh, you know, the other two, the other two clients wanted to keep going. I did not. Based on the advice, I mean, I've got a Sherpa standing next to me at 20,000 feet on a ledge. You know, he's mumbling, mountain bad mood, mountain bad mood. <laughs> so I, I was like, listen, this guy, and this guy had been on every, top of ever six times. So, and I always kind of felt like God was talking to me, like, hey, you know, numbskull, I'm sending you a message.
0: So it was a weather-related turnaround?
1: Well, it was, it was kind of weather-related because it was warm. So the gully we were going through was supposed to be snow-packed with, with uh, footsteps kicked in it from previous expeditions that are just frozen in there you're on a fixed line all you're doing is putting your feet in these snow steps and moving up on a with an ascender on a rope it's fairly steep but all that snow was gone and therefore the rocks were loose and there was rock fall coming down through this gully including some that were hitting us and the guide at the top just said i think this is a problem i think you guys i think this is really dangerous somebody's going to get hurt and the Sherpas weren't in favor of going forward so for me it was like kind of you know Game over. But I think if I had been a little younger, like the other two clients, I was, you know, they were 20 years younger than me, with not much climbing experience. They were all for taking the risk. And I think if I had been a little bit younger, we probably would have taken the risk and gone through that. Maybe would have summited. Maybe not. <laughs> you know. So I, but my commitment was, I'm not, I'm not losing any fingers or toes, or I'm not going to get hurt, I'm not going to get carried off this mountain because I'm on, on, at 20. Thousand or 22,000 feet, rescue is really problematic. And on Everest, it's impossible. For the people who criticize others, climbers, for leaving bodies there, not helping someone, it's a physical impossibility. You're not, you, if you get hit, hurt, stumble, fall on that mountain above, you know, whatever, you know, whatever, 23, 24, 25,000 feet, whatever, you're not, there, there's nobody, even the Sherpa, that are physically able to move you down off that mountain. So that's why they don't even pick the bodies up. It's not possible. It's just too hard. You can't. You can barely get yourself up and down that mountain, let alone trying to carry a 200 pound corpse, right? With gear. It's just too hard. So, yeah, no, it entered my mind for sure. Maybe, maybe, maybe too much so, you know? But that's okay. I'm here. I have all my fingers and toes, and I'm here. So I'm. I'm happy with my choices.
0: Last time you and I spoke was a couple of years ago at OTF. You were yeah. speaking with Frank Dobie, I believe.
1: Yeah, the panel discussion.
0: At that time, we discussed some of the personal effects that this experience took on your life. Can we talk about that? A sure, little bit? a little bit, yeah. It led to a divorce, I believe, and what were the factors that kind of went into that that were related to the climb and well, the after effects
1: that that situation was already preordained well before that climb so that was that was coming before i left on that trip so that 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 didn't have anything to do with it other than the fact that it um it gave me a little some courage to take a step that i probably should have taken you know prior to that And so when I came back, I was just a little more focused on, right, this isn't working. It wasn't working really at work, either. There were some things personally and professionally that weren't working. So it it caused me, I think, to recognize that, to see it, where maybe prior I couldn't see it or was ignoring it or something. So, uh, and look, my ex-wife is, you know, like a wonderful person. One of the nicest people you're ever going to want to meet. It just didn't work out. But I don't think... um, I think the work probably over time had more of an impact on that than the climb did, because you know, like from my perspective, you could you know you could probably go interview my ex-wife and she might might say different because it's an incredibly selfish pursuit. I mean, climbing is very selfish. Training for it, going and doing it, you're doing it completely for yourself. Well, that's one of the reasons I wanted to do the fundraising part because I knew it was selfish doing this entirely for me. I'm spending a large sum of money entirely for me for some, you know, ego thing. So the, so, so the the fundraising part of it for Make-A-Wish helped wash that a little bit for me. But in terms of my personal life, I don't think the climbing, from my part, didn't, let's didn't, say, instigate my divorce. You,
0: you know? did mention some issues where you have to come to grips with, like your guide had told you, you're going to have to, Come to terms with this at some point, you know. You, when you came down, you know, you stopped. I think, from based on our conversation, stopped doing a lot of stuff. But there is some regret and some issues that you work through, and you know, I think you talked about some weight gain and things like that. how Can you d- explain that whole r- relationship?
1: Well, you know, you mentioned earlier about how it relates to work. Um, it, so. That, for me, is just like an event for most of the staff, and for me too. the day the event is over is like the circus leaves town, right, and all of a sudden, all this build up, all this build up, all this excitement and it 's just like this huge adrenaline drop when these events are over, and you really as a, as a leader and a manager, you have to be prepared for that and because people don 't even know it impacts them, but I can see it because i 've been through it, and I was for sure. Um, Number one, when I came back, I was done with. I I never wanted to go to a gym again. I swore I'd never work out again. (laughs) I swore I would never eat kale again. (laughs) I swore I would like, and and I I just I had just been had spent so many years like doing that, and probably three years, two years for sure, focused on that specific event. I was just kind of over it. I mean, I, I I just didn't. I never wanted to do it again. And, uh, yeah, I, don't, I mean, I guess you could probably call it depression or, like, um, a void or a cavity that's there that's now empty. You know, how do you fill that cavity? How do you fill that void? You know, and, and so that probably maybe did exacerbate my personal life a little bit because there's a void there. There's a void in my personal life, and that led to, you know, a quart of haagen every night. A couple beers and some pizza, uh, which I had deprived myself of for a long time. And, yeah, I, I, I put on, like, I went over there at 192. I came back at 183, which is what I weighed in college. And within six months, I was 225, so 40 pounds over the course of that winter, early spring, end of the summer. Like, immediately put on weight a lot of that not all a lot of that I've lost because I I I was in bad I was going in a bad direction you know I could either I was either gonna I was either gonna go uh, I was either gonna continue walking around with my pants unbuttoned or or I was gonna go buy a whole new wardrobe right that was I had two choices well I had three I could lose the weight I can try to you know have some semblance of a life or I could walk around with my pants unbuttoned or I could go spend a bunch of money, <laughs> buying new clothes. So I chose. To, I chose. All right, I don't want to spend the money because I'm a cheapskate. You know, I can't walk around my shirt untucked all the time. <laughs> so I'll I'll try to get back in the clothes that I was wearing.
0: That's <laughs> a first.
1: <laughs> yeah. So. Yeah, I mean, I I suppose you could say a little bit of dep- <clears throat> of depression, or no, 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 there's probably another word, uh, good vocabulary, but um, certainly a, a gap. Th- there's a void there. You know, you're doing something for five hours a day and thinking about it for the other waking moments. When I would go to work, I'd be thinking about it. Okay, I've got to get this done today because I've got to leave it too because I've got to go blah, 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 all down the road. Then i got to write my thank you notes when I get home. And so it's, it's like this obsession with this one thing. And that was gone, and so that, yeah. But it's been really good for me.
0: Yeah, you talked uh, uh, so much about the positives that you took away from that experience. How did that affect you or how did that change you as a personnel manager?
1: Um, I think certain things became less important to me. I, I, I stopped, I mean I, well I was more appreciative of my staff over there because they sacrificed a lot for me to go there, <laughs> right? They're the ones I asked to stay till five or six o'clock at night and it gave me a greater I think it drew me closer to them because of that and I'm really good friends with that with that group that was at Oakland Hills they're no longer there but that group there that was there in 2013 14 15 16 17 I'm really good friends with all that almost that entire group we stay in contact every time I go back to Michigan I see them so I think that was one nice benefit of it as I was much more appreciative of them when I came back um And I think, I mean, it's a good question. I think...
0: Are you a different superintendent now at Medina than you were at Oakland Hills?
1: No, without question. There's absolutely no question about that. I mean, any, uh, you know, 20 years at a club is a long time, (laughs) yeah. At a top club, uh, any club, I don't care, any club. But at a top club, that is a long time. And, you know, you have to to be cautious if you're a superintendent, not, not to be... Resistant to change, or or, you know, being short with people, and the same complaints. When I got there in 1997, you're going to hear throughout your entire career. Well, I don't care what it is, you're going to hear those same things. You got to learn how to deal with that. So I think it made me um, more appreciative of, um, I'm more appreciative of life, less stressed about work. I don't know if my staff here. I agree with that, but I'm less stressed about work. It's a little less. Um, I don't say it's less important, but it doesn't take uh, an unhealthy uh, significance. Let's say that it's it's like the priority I place on work is I think a little healthier now after having done all this stuff, done all the tournaments, been in Oakley Hills for 20 years. Um, I think I'm. I think they're getting. Medina is getting like a better superintendent than I was 20 years ago, for sure. You know, again, as we talked about, like part of that's maturity and just being older, being a little wiser, I hope. Being a little wiser, being a little less stressed about when that grass is going to come back. That's something. Not worry about that. The Cubs are playing tomorrow, you know. Who wants to go to the Cubs game is a little more important than 10 square feet of dead grass someplace that nobody else sees but us you know I had a, re- I had a really good uh, superintendent that worked for me that is now at Lakeshore Country Club Jeff and he told me once when we were talking about this stuff
0: Jeff what's his friends
1: last Jeff friends he said superintendents are the only ones to see the problems that they think they have right nobody else sees those problems so superintendents are the only ones to see the problems they think they have it, most of the time, it's I, th- I think it's that's a really prescient comment. It's really insightful because usually the problems you're seeing aren't problems. <laughs> you know, the real problem is Pedro, my kind of our shop steward, coming to me this morning and saying his wife had to go to the ER down in Mexico. Well, what do I do? And we all said, you get on a plane. I go to O'Hare this morning and get on a plane and get back down there. We'll worry about pay and all that business when you get back just go, go see your wife you, you, you know not that i wouldn't have done that 20 years ago but i think there are other situations like that that today are I'm, I'm better able to like make sure that people their lives what they're doing outside of work is much more important than anything we're doing inside of work Y- y- you know, Chris Funky, the course superintendent, he just had a baby um, earlier this spring. I forget when. Earlier this spring, maybe. So he's got a newborn. That is so much more important than anything else we're doing. <laughs> so I'm always trying to tell him, go spend time with your kid. Like, uh, BMW is going to come and go, and it, it's going to be over on the 19th of August. It'll be over. So nothing that we're going to do is going to stop that BMW from happening. So I think, I'm hoping, I don't, I don't know if, I, I hope that those kind of things I, I put in better perspective today than I did 10 years ago, 20 years ago. Better.
0: Who mentored you back in the day?
1: Um, well, I've been lucky to have a lot of very patient bosses. <laughs> like, really patient. Um, you know, I worked for Phil Taylor in, here in Chicago, for Danny Quast here. I worked... So I've I've been blessed with really good GMs. I mean, um, I I, I had a really good golf pro at Wakanda and a really good general manager at Wakanda when I was hired there. I had a really good um, business manager at Wakanda who probably was one of my better mentors, actually, even though we didn't work together that long, four or five years. Bert. Bert was really good for me.
0: Bert's last name?
1: Lamert. He... he he could see that I probably didn't have a ton of leadership skills and management skills and I remember one day in the men's grill, he brought down a book to me and he said, just passed it, he pushed it over and he goes "You might want to read that, it's a really good book and it was Stephen Covey's Seven Habits of Highly Effective People I'd never heard of it and I read it and I was like wow, I'm really bad because all the bad examples they give in those leadership books, I was doing them all and so he ended up being a really good mentor for me. Rick Bayless, who's now at Lost Tree in Florida, really good mentor for me. Um, I've got an awesome general manager now, Robert Ceracci. He's Lost been,
0: Tree right there in North Palm Beach? Yeah, yeah. yeah,
1: yeah. he went from Oakland to Lost Tree. Um, he's been somebody I've relied on all my entire career since he hired me, and my general manager now, Robert, is really good. Um, so I've been, like, really blessed. Really blessed and grateful to have these people who give me nuggets of information and are not afraid to tell me, like close the door and tell me, hey, you know, FYI, this isn't going too good. I, you can't say that, or you can't do that. Or if you say this differently, you you know, I'm, I'm a person who gets a little worked up, and I can get worked up in meetings. And I remember Rick Bayless, after getting worked up in a Green Committee meeting, I mean, it's, it's all based on passion, not anger, right? And I remember he said to me once after one of these meetings, he's like, when we get emotional, we lose our point. That's all he said. And that has stuck with me for 15 years. When we get emotional, we lose our point. Not that I still don't do that, but it caused me to like, self-reflect a little bit. And once, once you do that, you can catch yourself. And like I said earlier, what works for us works for us until it doesn't. What's important is we understand what works for us and what doesn't. And I think that only comes with time. So I know what doesn't work for me. It doesn't mean I don't still do it. But it means when I do do it, I'm better able to catch myself and go, wait a minute, calm down, change your tone of voice, settle down, be calm. This isn't that important. And that's why I said earlier, one of the reasons that I like getting older is that it's a little wisdom, I hope, I hope, comes with that.
0: What's next for Medina?
1: Well, there are no tournaments on the schedule, but they're always in conversations with people. Um, So, you know, it's a tournament site, not just because of the golf course, but, I mean, if you look at its location, you know, we're 30 minutes from Chicago, hotels, transportation, security access, ingress and egress, is off the charts, 650 acres. You know, they check all the boxes for a tournament site. So they're going to have a tournament. What that is, you know, I don't know. Um, And with a property this big, with so many facilities, you know, just the capital infrastructure every year is just enormous. I mean, roadways and bridges and a 100-year-old clubhouse and... um, drainage issues and, you know, the waterway. Uh, it's just it's the gun club, the racket center, the pool, all of that stuff is on the books. They have, a a they have a, to their credit, they've done a very good job of developing a long-range strategic plan on how to fund it, trying to recruit new members and keep the facilities up and add facilities and try to grow. Um, to their credit, again, they recognize that you're not going to cut your way to excellence, and a lot of clubs feel that they can cut their way to excellence. Ain't going to happen. they never going to happen. You're never going to cut expenses so low to reach excellence, right? You're, you have to grow. You either, if you're not growing, you're you're going backwards because staying even is going backwards. So, they're very well aware of that, and I give them credit to you know they have to grow. They have to grow the membership. They have to grow the facilities. So, what's next? I think is is um, continuing to improve the facilities we have and making sure they're up to speed. I'm sure I'm not privy to it, but I'm sure looking at future tournaments and and what that might look like and making sure that we have a healthy membership that continues to grow and enlarge and we have space for them and facilities to them. Our general manager is a very forward-thinking guy who, you know, wants to always talking about the Medina community and making sure we have a place for families to go for five or six hours. You know, We're not, we're not a golf club. We're a country club. With 650 acres, we have no choice but to be a country club. So that means we have to have more facilities that think outside the box. So, yeah, that's kind of what's on our plate.
0: Two years ago, you spent some time over at the with Rick Techmeyer at the Solheim Cup. Yeah. How long have you known Rick? How did you guys meet?
1: I was I was there to help a buddy, Kevin Ross, and I were mowing fairways, and I I said I said, <laughs> I said Are you sure you want me on a piece of equipment? I mean, the last time I went on a piece of equipment, it's been a while. And he said, No, it's got your name on it, you and Kevin. So we've moved fairways for a couple. I was only there for a couple of days. And I've known him since I moved to Iowa in nineteen ninety two, I think. And we served on the board of directors over there the Iowa Association. And um, you know, just a really a really good guy who, you know, you could call at midnight and say, I got a flat tire, I'm on I eighty driving through Des Moines, I got a flat tire, I'm stuck. He'd say, All right, no, you're right there. And he'd give you grief for not being able to change it yourself, <laughs> but he he put out he'd you know he put on his pajamas, come over and help you do whatever you got to do. You know that's just that's just who he is. And um, so we've had a relationship for a long time, and and you no, know, I, I, I I appreciate him. I, I, in fact, I went over to see him when he was inducted into the Hall of Fame this past winter. That was fun. That
0: was fun. Tournaments like that, the Solheim Cup, the Ryder Cup, how do they differ from what you're going to be facing next month at the BMW?
1: Oh, I think it's all scale. You know, because at the end of the day, to a superintendent, it's what's inside the ropes, and what's inside the ropes is going to be 60 acres. If you get a 7,000 yard golf course, you're worried about 60 acres. And I don't care whether it's a small event, a mid level event, the Solheim Cup, the President's Cup, the Ryder Cup, or the BMW we all are focused on inside that 60 acres. So as it turns out, it's not that much different.
0: When you do your, your dry runs, in the past, take me through some, maybe some of the things you found that didn't work, some, just some anecdotes of things that didn't work.
1: Yeah, okay, so, well, the first dry run we did here, something simple. There were a few things, but something that immediately comes to mind is we had the driving range team staged behind the like, f- bulk of the mowing team. So the, we, had the, we had the bulk of the mowing team and all those carts and mowers staged out front and blocking everybody else behind them while the driving range team needs to go out first. So it was just something as simple as how we're arranging the blocks around the shop. We, we moved the driving range team, that whole group mowers, carts and everything, to the front of the line because they needed to release first. And it's like a little thing like that, can make a big difference. And the most recent one we did, the uh, fairway mowers kind of got separated from themselves. So we want them to go as a group. So so when one guy got done with a fairway, he just moved to the next one. In the dark, now they're separated and lost, and we can't manage them. So now we need to have a little crew meeting with them and tell them, everybody stay together. Right? It sounds simple and minuscule, but it's important. Especially if somebody blows a hydraulic hose it's important that they're together as a team. So there's a set of eyes on everybody's mower. Um, I mean, there's just other little things. Um, The directions you mow maybe are easier when it's daylight versus when it's dark, where we turn around, where we exit off of a fairway. I don't know this property yet. You know, at Oakland, I could tell you, I could sit here at this desk and at least on that golf course before it gets renovated, I could tell you where to drive off of each fairway. Right? I don't know that yet here. So I, I need to see that to try to help and provide input on that. And then, uh, you know, I just, um, that was a big thing, was let the last trial run um, was the se- the ferry moors got separated. Saw a couple carts without lights on them, or one that was burned out, and clean that up, right? Um, we needed, uh, so this last one, the gas cans that go out with the ferry blowers because they can't, make it the whole route without that machine running out of gas. So they take a gas can with them. That gas can was sitting in the back of a cart, just sitting in the cart. Well, you can't have that. That gas can needs to be in, uh, you know, a plastic container, so to speak. So we just go down to Home Depot and buy a plastic container to put the gas can in in case there's a spill, right? So it's little things like that. It was when we staged all the carts out front of the shop, the The guys doing the staging they they pushed the cart up too close to the piece of equipment in front of it, so you couldn't walk between in front of the cart you had to climb over the cart, so we scheduled everybody to three feet between each each piece of equipment so that you can walk around the piece of equipment right so i mean it's it's just a lot of little things like that that can save you time um during the event, and again, the main thing it does is it gets the staff thinking about these things. It gets them thinking about logistics. It gets them thinking about efficiencies in organization, and that will carry over into everyday routine maintenance as we... Our setup in the morning is already better because we're thinking about tournament setup. So for routine member play, our morning separation, uh, setup and preparation is better. The way we stage carts for member play is better. So those are the added benefits and the things you see. And it's not really even so much of what you see, it's what the staff sees. You want them engaged, right? You want them coming up with the ideas. The worst kind of operation is, is top-down management, right? Where you have one dictator at top telling everybody what to do. You need bottom-up management. The best operations are the ones where the managers don't do much. Drink coffee and ride around, have their dog, run their dog. And the staff is deciding what to do. And that's what I'm trying to get to here: is is much more involvement and management from the frontline workers. Hey, well, how about if we mow this green in front of that one because I can drive over left of 15 instead of going to the right of 15 or well, whatever it is? Right? They need to come up with those ideas, not you. So those are the kind of things that we're still going to we're, we're we're still learning from.
0: Yeah. I see some signage out here, a lot of motivational stuff out in the in your lobby and. Sort of rule, I don't say rules of conduct, but guidelines of how an operation should be run professionally. You know, th- there was a lot of signage here when Curtis was here as well. How important is it for you to be a motivator to these guys? Because you've already talked a little bit about how they need to come up with these ideas for. You know, the idea is to make the place great, make the place better. They need to be able to come up with those themselves. It can't be everything coming from you.
1: Well, it's really important. And, again, I, I, I'm not going to say that I'm good at it. I don't know that motivation is my, my top strength. Um, but it's your job. But it, Right, for sure. It's part of the job. And for me, it, starts, it, it has always started with cleanliness and organization. You have a dirty shop. You have a disorganized shop. You have dirty equipment you have equipment that doesn't run, you've got a golf course that's reflective of that. And I don't care what business you're in. The, the, the product you provide is going to be reflective of your workspace. And so, for me, it's trying to teach the guys that you got to take care of the equipment. You've got to wash it. you got to put it away in the right spot. You can't have garbage around. You've got to be clean. you got to have your shirts tucked in. you got to have your hat pointed forward. These things seem nitpicky, but they really matter towards the culture. And I, I, I probably do more of that than I do, like I'm not a good speech giver. And I'm not good at, you know, the rah-rah, let's go get them today, boys. I'm not very good at that. And I don't really, so I, I, I try to hire people that are good at that and let them do it. And I think the best, to me, the best form of motivation is treating people with respect and trying to find out what they do right and not what they do wrong because again we're in a business we're genetically bred to be perfectionists so we come in every day and try to find out what's wrong and if you let that leak over into the staff it ends up being really toxic so we're much better off trying to find out what's right and 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 not what's wrong and so I'm always trying to find something that's right and again I can't say- I can't say that I'm always good at that, but it's always in the top of my mind. If you want to be a motivator, uh, find something that somebody does well, put them on it, try to find a round peg for a round hole, put them on that job, and give them a pat on the back and some recognition. And that's all these guys want, that's all anybody wants, is to know that they're doing the job the right way. Train them the right way and pat them on the back and know that they're humans and they're going to make mistakes. Things are going to go wrong. If you do that, I think you end up having a pretty good. Point.